Welcome to Movement is My Constant. This is the podcast for breaking stagnation patterns. Through interviews with movement researchers, I seek inspiration in their experience and encourage you to stay curious, to explore movement with awareness, knowing that the body contains the intelligence to make decisions and communicate with grace. Enjoy this space. My name is Anna and I'm your host today. Perfectionism is an adaptive strategy. My guest today is Vix Anderton. She's a perfectionist and productivity coach. She works with chronic overdoers, overthinkers, and control freaks. She helps her clients turn into their inner critic and look at it as an ally to find powerful and sustainable ways to get on with what they care about without overwhelm and burnout. Vix is a wonderful human being. She recently published a book called Enough. And in her book, we learn about the relationship between being the perfectionist and what does it mean to be enough. Join me in this wonderful conversation to get to know more about Vix. Enjoy. Welcome, Vix. Welcome to Movement is My Constant. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you. Yeah, me too. It's a real pleasure to be invited. Yeah, it's good to be here with you. Thank you. So the reason we got together in this space is I know your work from obviously the embodiment world, so to speak, and my coach facilitating course. And then I got always super intrigued by the way you were, you know, pointing out to this idea of perfectionism. And I received your newsletter and it's really on point because you're always bringing that little itchy feeling of like, oh, you know, here's the problem or why are we trying to always be perfect? And like, huh, spot on. And uh, it's really an invitation to, you know, remind ourselves of the reality of our perfect little world, so to speak. And you've recently also published a book, which is called Enough. And it's a great book. I loved reading it. I really enjoyed how clear it is. It brings a lot of clarity to the subject. But what I love the most is how you kind of turned it around in a way that you're not trying to explain what perfectionism is. You're trying to push it into the other way of saying, you know, what's the antidote? What happens when you're trying to be perfect? So you bring out concepts of the self-torture and self-brutalization. I love that you really made clear. And then you were also bringing us into this idea of the flavors of the perfectionist. I love that. I never knew, you know, oh yeah, this makes complete sense. Yeah, I can identify myself with it instead of thinking, oh, I'm a perfectionist, but there's so many flavors. So we can talk about it a little bit ahead. And I used your book as a way to navigate the conversation, but I wanted to point out to the listeners that it's a really great resource. It's a great book in terms of content. And also it has self-reflecting exercises, which I think they're great to open up this idea of perfectionism. And like I told you, I actually Googled the word perfectionism because I thought, okay, where does this come from? And I found that the word has been firstly used, I think around 1800s or a bit earlier than that. So it's not an ancient word. It doesn't come from our vocabulary as an ancient word. So I thought, okay, this is interesting. Industrial era, you know, what are we trying to do here? So I just wanted to add that I find your work 
disruptive in a way that you're trying to break this word. And perhaps one day we can actually remove it from our existence or even remove it from our vocabulary. Who knows? I'll leave it to that. I always enjoy starting with a little bit of personal story mm -hmm. and influences and how did you get here? So I wanted to invite you to tell a bit about your story and also to read that initial part that I invited you to bring about how did this all came up in your life, this idea of being perfect. Okay, so that's the first idea that I'd actually like to debunk yeah. is that <laughs> I don't think perfectionism is the pursuit of perfection. I think that's often how it's sort of talked about in the kind of, you know, mm -hmm. the world of psychiatry and psychology and things. But my experience of it is less about a drive for perfection and more of the kind of the running away or the trying to hide from my own sense of like not enoughness. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that, that's at least my experience of, of perfectionism and something that I think, you know, you sort of talked about getting away from the word of perfectionism. I'd like to kind of like include it as, as a part of normal human experience. Mm -hmm. It's incredibly common in different flavors and different forms. Yeah. And I think it's incredibly badly named. <laughs> I don't think it really does the experience of it a lot of justice. Yeah. So yeah, maybe let me start there. Yeah. My background is in the military. In fact, I would say like the first 30 years of my life was sort of dominated by institutions. So the Air Force being my father's career, then 10 years at boarding school, and then I joined the Air Force myself. So I was really in, yeah, a lot of structure and a lot of sense of there was kind of like a right way to be in the world. Mm -hmm. I think that also coincided for me with an impact of moving so much as a child, you know, whatever sort of like personality tendencies I had. And yeah, I would say that sort of, I would have never described myself a perfectionist at the time. It's really only now like in hindsight, it's like, oh yeah, okay. I really, I, <laughs> I see the threads running throughout my life. But this overwhelming sense of not wanting to allow people to see that I was struggling or that I didn't get something or that I, I didn't know. So yeah, I can read the little extract that you wanted me to read. So yeah, I came home age six, totally inconsolable after I didn't understand something at school. My teacher had mentioned something in a biology class that's normally taught to children three years older. And I was sure that there was something wrong with me because I hadn't understood. I didn't say anything at the time and I didn't ask a question. I simply assumed that my teacher expected me to understand because why else would she say it? And it was a failure, but I was a failure because I didn't get it. And so, yeah, I wrote in the book that this incident is an encapsulation of my experience of perfectionist, sort of the deep pain I felt because I wasn't good enough. And in fact, when I was at military intelligence school later on, my instructors dubbed this the VIX spiral of despair. Oh. And so this sort of like shame spiral that would kick in if I wow. thought I'd made a mistake or I didn't mm. know what how to respond to something. And yeah, I'd get like completely fixed. It's like everything else disappeared. I disappeared. Total fixation on me, on the problem. Looking back, I did very good at the veneer. Mm -hmm. Like I think people thought I was coping. I was successful. You know, I was all, all the things that you're meant to be. And there was just this like shame spiral that would suddenly appear that I think was a, an indication that I was struggling and that I don't think I even realized I was struggling. Yeah. I got so good at numbing out and not processing my emotions and just getting on with it because quite frankly, like what else was I going to do? Yeah. You know, that's how I had been taught to kind of deal with the world. Yeah. This very like practical Air Force family. I should say actually that worked really well for me yeah. for over 30 years. And, and again, I want to acknowledge that perfectionism 
is an adaptive strategy. As human beings, we are adaptive. We don't do stuff that doesn't work. So it worked for me for a really long time. Where it stopped working was after I left the Air Force and I I joined, eventually joined an international development consultancy. And I was in a senior leadership position. And it was an interesting role because I didn't really have peers. So the other senior leaders in the organization were five to 10 years older than me. Mm -hmm. And the other people who were my age group were kind of technical people and significantly more junior than me. And so I could pilot losing the horizon in cloud. Like I had no idea what good enough looked like. And with this sort of story that I'm broken, I'm not enough. Well, if it's not good enough, it means I need to try harder. And so I did. I tried harder and harder and harder and all the way to running myself into burnout. And even then I would like to say, oh, I, remember. I was like, oh, I saw the lights and I was like, yay. And I didn't, <laughs> but I started, I started to make shift. You know, I got into coaching. I was doing my yoga teacher training and sort of slowly, slowly, slowly over the last five years, I've been kind of like peeling back these layers finding different healing practices and slowly coming to a place where and really actually I have to say really like this just deepened for me personally in the last two months I'm like wow I don't have to keep making myself wrong all the time like even if I don't get something even if I feel resistance to an exercise that doesn't make me wrong that's simply the experience that I'm having it's still I feel slightly like it sounds so simple (laughs) But I'm still feeling a little bit like, wow, yeah. it's like revelatory to me. Yeah. But yeah, that's a little bit of like how I got here. Yeah, yeah. It's such a rich story. I love hearing it. Also, because you come from a such different, you know, place and where you are now, but they have their own place to be when they happen, when your story happens. And I was sensitive to the pain, you know, that one feels when you think you're not enough, you're not doing things right. And everything you were telling now, it just points to the direction of the complexity of the perfection. And what you said in the beginning is really important. It's not about pursuing perfectionism, but it's really not allowing us to be where we are. Now you allow yourself and that's a beautiful place. And I can relate to what you say. It seems so simple. And when you take a step back, you're like, yeah, this is simple, but it's very hard to get there. Because it has to put you in a place where you have a lot of confidence and trust in your process. Mm -hmm. So there's so much work in this so-called simplicity of what it is to be just here and allowing things. I was curious also in your story about that moment of change. You were saying, okay, so I've started doing coaching and yoga. And what led you to that change? Was it just maybe health reasons or can you remember something about it? Yeah, I was always doing my yoga teacher training when I burnt out. Mm-hmm. So like I'd been practicing for a few years. I really loved it, you know, that sort of desire to share that. Yeah. And then after I burnt out and, you know, I was off work for a while and I was sort of speaking to my coach about kind of return to work plans and things. And I, I felt really strongly, this is not a healthy place for me to be. This is not working for me. I did not leave a frankly very successful career in the Air Force to be depressed I was having suicidal ideation Mm. it felt like a really dark place and ironically at the time like I had everything that I was meant to have right I just bought a flat in central London I had a boyfriend I had this like really good job I had it all and I couldn't understand why it felt so empty and so as I was contemplating about leaving this job and this sense of like oh maybe I won't just get another job maybe I'll like freelance and I'll teach a bit of yoga and and I was I think I was working through one of these you know career change books and one of the questions was, you know, when is a time that you've really felt meaning and purpose in your work? And the example that immediately came to mind was just after I left the Air Force, I volunteered in Bangladesh for six months. 
and I was leading a team of youth volunteers. So they were all sort of between 18 and 21, just out of school, just out of university. And a big part of my job was kind of mentoring, coaching these, these young people. And I loved it. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, maybe there's something about this coaching thing. As much as I love structure and I love a plan, I have never really had a plan for my life, my career. <laughs> it's very much been like, oh, that looks interesting. I'll go explore that. Yeah. I had a mansion when I first left the Air Force. I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I had this idea of like, I want to collect experiences, not stuff. Mm. Like I want to be an old lady in my nursing home in like 70 years time being like, did I tell you this time that I... <laughs> You know, and that had been a pretty useful guide, actually. Um, when I went to Bangladesh, I'd actually had a job offer to go work at Goldman Sachs, and I, I had to choose. And I was like, this Bangladesh thing feels like a one-off opportunity, so I'm going to go do this. And so when I burnt out and I left my left full-time employment, my, my mantra became to have a life that I didn't need a holiday from. Mm. I'd been really aware of burning out that I was just like holding on to the weekend, holding on to like the next kind of break that I had. And so I would like to live my life with the same kind of awe and sense of adventure and sense of presence that I feel when I'm not at work. And so it was very much like an exploration, like how do I do that more? And the more I did it, the more I felt a natural kind of compulsion to want to kind of share that with others. Yeah, I love that. That's exactly how I want to live my life too. And I think <laughs> it just changes a lot the perspective we have over our day-to-day -day activities instead of looking forward to, okay, When is my next holiday? When is the weekend coming? And no, then you are much more present and aware to everything you're doing. Yeah. And you take all in, take your experiences in. And I think you devote yourself in a more dedicated way because you know, or I know that I'm doing the things that I love. And I'm okay with the ebb and flow of not having the perfect nine to five or the perfect structure in my day for it. So another thing that I took on your work was some sort of normalizing authenticity. So that's a big message there as well. This is in my opinion, like you just said, it's not about removing the word perfectionism, but it's understanding a new relationship with it. And I think authenticity is something so big and bringing it more to normal. Like I love the title of your book, Enough. It's a scary word for someone who is a perfectionist. It's just like, what do you mean enough? enough just <laughs> yeah so that's the biggest message i took the normalization of that what it is being enough and bringing your authentic self mm -hmm. and you point out to the attributes of this authenticity and perhaps we can explore a little bit of this enoughness what is enough to you and i know you also pointed out in the book a little bit about you know how it was to bring enoughness to this work to your book when is it enough if you want to explore there yeah oh wow there's so much there's so much there <laughs> maybe the place to start so Brene Brown describes perfectionism as this 20-ton shield that we carry around thinking that it's going to keep us safe but all it really does is cut us off from ourselves and it stops us being seen and you know this kind of draws on like Gabor Mate's work that as children we will always prioritize secure attachment over authentic expression. Mm -hmm. So if perfectionism is a shield, I see authenticity, authentic expression as a big part of the antidote. That's the kind of bravery, the vulnerability to drop the, the shield of perfectionism and to allow myself to be seen exactly as I am with the perfectionism and with the not enoughness and the messiness and the incomplete humanness 
And that's really not easy. I've mm. been practicing authentic relations for four years. And, you know, I was teaching a class yesterday and I'd had some bad news in the morning and I really didn't want to teach. Mm. I turned up and I went into the edge of rather than just like putting on the facade of like, fix the facilitator. I've got everything. Everything is good. I went into the edge of like, I'm having a really tough morning. And actually, there's a part of me that doesn't want to be here. And the reason that I'm here is because every time I am, every time I am with people, it allows me to be with myself more. And and I came away from that session just feeling joyful, just like nourished and connected. And, you know, perfection is essentially, it's a nervous system response. Like our nervous system is activated. So either it's that kind of the posture, sympathetic, fight or flight, how do I get stuff done? Or I'm very actively avoiding the stuff to get done that really kind of like forward engaged kind of movement. Or it's the parasympathetic dorsal vagal collapse. Oh my God, I'm absolutely not good enough. I'm, it's hopeless. I'm never going to be able to do this make myself small and there's something about authenticity something about connection that brings us back to that place of ventral vagal safety our social engagement system comes back on and so for me authenticity i'm actually writing about this at the moment there isn't a right way to do authentic in the same way that there isn't a right way to do enough which i you know the the perfectionist of me is like what do you mean there isn't a right answer (laughs) oh no like the panic kind of kicks in it's a sense that the immense power of not abandoning myself, of like not making myself wrong and seeing myself and allowing myself to be seen with, with all of it, with all of the multitudes, with, I call it my traveling circus. Mm. Like there's all sorts of stuff going on in here all of the time. Mm. And rather than layering on shame and judgment onto an experience that is already difficult, what happens if I attempt to give it some space? In authentic relating, we call it this idea of welcoming everything. It doesn't mean tolerating everything or that saying everything is, you know, yeah, I'm stoically going to accept everything, particularly when it's like bad behavior coming towards me. But there's a sense of noticing and orienting towards my own reality. Mm. Because from that place, I can start to make an informed choice. So you'll be familiar with the model of embodied coaching, which mm-hmm. is awareness plus range equals choice. So the sense of like welcoming everything is like, well, I need to at least start where I am before I can make any sort of decision about what tools I want to use to do something else. And that for me is, yeah, that's a big part of authenticity. Mm-hmm. To be with myself, to notice what I'm feeling, notice how I am. And then to choose to speak some of that into the world. And, and really crucial for me, authenticity does not mean bearing my soul. Actually, one of the most authentic things that people can say in a class that I teach is, I don't want to share right now. The reason I find that authentic is because there's such congruence between how I am on the inside and what I'm sharing with the world, even if that's, I don't want to share. And that for me is authenticity. And it looks different with different people. It looks different at different times. It's a felt sense of kind of congruence. Yeah. Sorry, that was a little bit of a rant, but I no, it wasn't. It makes all sense. I love this. <laughs> no, and I'm happy that you shared. I've heard so many great things. One of them is that nothing is fixed, nothing is forever. That's one of my life mantras. I've learned in a very strenuous hike in Peru. Nothing is forever, and that just shows that we cannot linger or, or attach to things as successful stories as we found the answer because life happens and then you are faced with a challenge you are doing something that you love which is teaching your group or facilitating and then all of a sudden there's a new challenge and it shifts and you have to go back to everything you've learned you have to go back and return to yourself 
and be there, be the example of what you are, you know, practicing or what you learn. And this idea of centering also in mindfulness, right? In our meditation, in my meditation, I try to also bring the idea of creating space between the stimulus and how are you going to act or react. And that's exactly it. It's you're centering yourself and you're allowing, you're creating a space to then move from there instead of moving without space, without time in between. And indeed, that is very powerful. And communication, the way we communicate to others, has to come from that space, not from the thoughts ahead or from what we would like to, I don't know, say. Or And I love it. I love the way you explore authenticity from drawing a little bit, creating this viewpoint on the topic. It's very complex and it's beautiful. And you have this quote, you have a lot of resources in the book. It's just incredible. But there was one that I took that says, perfectionism doesn't make you feel perfect. It makes you feel inadequate by Maria Shriver. And this is, like I said, turning the idea of perfectionism upside down. It's not what it is. It's what it isn't. And when I heard a lot of these words, how it makes you feel, it just allowed me to say, oh, yeah, it's exactly how I feel. I feel inadequate when I'm trying to be. So you then open also the conversation in your book around these flavors of perfectionism. Mm -hmm. I don't want to disclose the whole book, obviously. I'm just trying to navigate through the book. Yeah, sure. But I found the flavors very good to even make it more clear. Yeah. So so where the flavors came from is because I think there's a real stereotype about what a perfectionist is. Mm -hmm. And it is, you know, the fastidious dotting the I's, crossing the T's, staying up to two in the morning till it's just right. And yet, I mean, that can be part of it. But in my experience of, of working with people the way perfectionism was showing up was so much broader than that. And one of the things I have really noticed is that many perfectionists don't like to admit that we're perfectionists. So there's something about, I've heard people say, oh, I'm not good enough to be a perfectionist. Or also this kind of like the gripping to this identity. It's like, but if I don't have this, how am I ever going to get anything done in the world? Yeah. Like that is the most important thing. But in that moment, it is. And so what I wanted to do was kind of to have a more nuanced conversation about the ways that perfectionism shows up. So I've identified five flavors. There's the kind of the overachiever, the kind of, you know, chasing the A's. It's all about I have to do in order to prove my worth into the world. And I also noticed that lots of people were showing up with the same kind of perfectionist thinking, but it was manifesting in procrastination mm-hmm. so rather than necessarily like the forward and do it was kind of more like this sideways like no I'm, I'm never going to be good enough to do this so like how can I avoid it I also noticed that there's like a strong kind of people pleasing so this again comes up in some of the psychological literature this kind of like other orientated perfectionism mm-hmm. and you know and I had people sort of describe to me you know they come away from a conversation and all they would be doing was like this post-match analysis of like, did I say everything right? Like, what if I offended them? And did I, oh, maybe I didn't express myself like that. What do, what do they think of me now? Yes. Kind of thing. So this, you know, I noticed it in myself as this, like, one of the ways I kept myself safe was to manage other people's experience of me. And so as long as everybody else was having a good time, it didn't matter how I felt, but like that would keep me safe because everybody else was having a good time. Um, so that's the people pleasing. Overthinking. So I just sort of described some of that rumination, that kind of constant either post-match analysis of did I make a mistake or the forward orientated but what if this happens and how am I going to do that and you know 56 steps ahead of where you are and then there's the control freak so again another way that we kind of keep ourselves safe with this kind of but just grip the steering wheel hard enough (laughs) nothing will go wrong (laughs) and nobody will notice that I've got no idea what I'm doing yeah and this was the other thing that I wanted to, to bring to this so 
I think sometimes in life, labels can be really unhelpful. Like labels put us in a box and they actually remove our ability to, to make a choice and we become defined by it. And there's something so powerful about bringing a name to something that I haven't noticed in my own experience. So when somebody names it, you're like, oh, yeah. Oh I, I, oh, I get myself in a whole new level. And what you're doing now, I can laugh about it. Like it almost becomes like slightly comedic when you're like, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and one of the things I think the perfectionism really does is like it kills joy. It kills creativity. It kills laughter. And so, you know, again, like part of the antidote is bringing back in the innocence. Mm. Actually, this has been part of my own exploration recently. I've just come to the end of a a menstruality leadership program. So Mm. really diving into cycle awareness. And the season of spring, the beginning of everything, is a season of innocence and exploration and experimentation and allowing yourself to get things wrong. Everything that perfectionists hate, okay? Like we will skip through spring and we will just like be full on summer. Let's get stuff done. I need to overachieve. Yep. Right. And we skip autumn because we don't like our inner critics and we skip winter because we feel guilty about resting. And so it's perpetual summer. <laughs> and so there's something about like reclaiming the, our, reclaiming our innocence, reclaiming the part of us that can laugh and play and be like, oh, rather than what if and like what's going to go wrong? Oh, what happens if I give this a go? Like, what would this be like to play with and, and see what happens? So. Yeah, for me, part of the flavors is also how can we bring like a little bit more humor back into what is often a very serious and, you know, you mentioned self-torture and self-brutalization. This hurts. Oh my God, it hurts. And there's something for me about bringing a little bit of humor and lightness that alleviates some of the ways I brutalize myself. Yeah, I love that. And you're bringing curiosity as well. As soon as you say, okay, what if? I love that question. What if yeah. suddenly you're shifting, you're already pointing towards something else that can be there to be explored. So I'm curious about your own practices. So you mentioned already authentic relating and also the menstrual cycles. Yep. Can you talk a little bit about how they help with your work or how they connect with your work? Yeah. So my work has kind of evolved. I love to work with the body. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, for a lot of perfectionists, we like to come at this with our intellect. Mm-hmm. Um, and quite frankly, if anybody's listening, if your intellect, if you could think your way through this, you would have figured it out already. Okay? This lives in our body, and therefore we need to work with the body up. Authentic relating was my gateway drug. I was already a coach, but it was my gateway into the world of embodiment and this idea of practicing something different. So, you know, authentic relating is a practice. For the first time, I was encouraged to kind of feel and express myself, something that I'd never really done before, and to be received and witnessed in that, to be accepted. Even as I was sort of speaking all of this stuff, my very first experience, we were sort of gathered in an initial sort of check-in circle, and everybody else was just speaking so eloquently. And my spiral of despair kicked in. By the time it came to me, I was in floods of tears. I was like, I can't do this. I don't know what I do. I can't find anything below my neck. And the irony was that I was actually doing the thing that I was saying that I couldn't do by revealing it. And I was like, oh, it's this? <laughs> oh, you mean it like this? I get to reveal this and the messiness and like the, I, I don't know if I can do this right. That's, that's part. Oh, oh, this is part of it. Okay. Amazing. All right. <laughs> so that was sort of my gateway in, into that. And like, like I've already said, you know, me, authenticity, connection, this feeling of it's not just me. I am not the broken one. Right. It was a big message that I got from authenticating. And then cycles, 
my menstrual cycle awareness practice, it started with um, Dan Pink's book, When. Mm. He talks a lot about like circadian rhythms and like, just like the timing of the timing of life. But my menstrual cycle awareness for me personally has been a, a really big game changer just in this, in this last year. It's really deepened this sort of sense of my menstrual cycle awareness practice gives me permission. So it gives me like the right time to be experimental, the right time to be doing, the right time to be completing and discerning and the right time to rest is kind of how I first got into it. And what I'm experiencing now is the more I go around that cycle and the more I'm with myself as I go around that cycle, it starts to build trust. As you were saying earlier about your hike, this says this won't last forever. And I can intellectually tell myself that, but my body is like, oh no, I'm totally stuck. I am never going to be able to get out of this and this is terrible. And I think what's starting to shift for me is this, the more I go through this round and round and the more I experience it, it's like, oh yeah, this does shift. Like that awkward, messy feeling that I get like just before I bleed, it might feel like it's going to last forever in the moment, but it doesn't. And so there, therefore, when I'm in other cycles in my life, I just had a, a period of quite deep void and existential crisis over like July and August. Mm. And rather than like working to get myself out of it, like, well, how do I need to do to find the answers to the questions? I was like, oh, I actually think I might be able to like, just relax a bit too far. It was deeply uncomfortable. Yes. <laughs> it's like, what happens if I don't try and escape? What happens if I'm here and I notice the questions and I notice the discomfort and I think things will start to move again. And so that's been a really powerful thing for me as a, as a perfectionist. It's like, there's a right time and place for things if I can orientate to that. And it does build up that sense of trust that it will keep turning. It's going to be okay. Yeah. <laughs> So my, my work now with people is informed by all of those things. So, you know, how you regulate your nervous system, how you hold boundaries with yourself and with others, you express yourself. Yeah, how you start to tune in and align with some of these these natural cycles. How do you deal with it in a critic? All of that. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess the other thing I'd say on this is that there's nowhere to get to with any of these practices. <laughs> I will say it again. Perfectionism is not a character flaw. It is not something that you need to fix in order to be a worthy human being. You are a worthy human being as a perfectionist. And what I'm noticing is that the more I engage in these practices, not that life gets easier, it's that I stop making it harder for myself. Yeah. So rather than like facing a challenge or making a mistake and then burdening myself down with self-blame and shame and like carrying the 20 ton shield it's like okay what I'm facing is hard but at least I'm not making it harder for myself yeah I really love the way you point out to trust how it's built it's in the how right so uh, one of the things that I'm very interested at the moment and whether it's intellectually or our body work it's the process so how do we work through things that's where we find our trust. Yeah. And it's not so much about, okay, why am I doing this or creating a, a very, you know, beautiful vision around our work or it's mostly about, okay, what am I doing? How do I do it? Because like you've already shared, life changes. Obviously we grow, we create this space, we develop, we become more attuned, mm-hmm. but it doesn't mean that stress doesn't hit us or very, you know, uh, serious things in life happen, but then our relationship to it just changes. Mm-hmm. And like you said, you welcome also this part of you, the perfectionist, all those difficult places that once we avoided now are part of our experience as well. Yeah. And it's like, again, going back to the hike or going back to a difficult place, a difficult walk, a path that has a lot of obstacles. That's life. Mm-hmm. That's how it is. And it's how we 
go about those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting you mentioned the word vision. It's a word I am slightly allergic to. <laughs> mm-hmm. Purpose is another one. Yeah. Maybe it's because I don't have them. Maybe other people do, and, and if that's their experience, that's totally fine. But I feel like so much pressure that there is like I have to pick. Like there's an answer, yeah. and it triggers my spiral. Right? It's like, but I don't, I don't know what the answer is. I really like to work with both the why, the how, and the what with people. Mm-hmm. But the why is rather than this like vision. The why for me is like connecting back to our core needs. Mm-hmm. Right? So when nonviolent communication teaches that our actions are driven by our feelings, and our feelings are driven by whether our needs are being met. And if we can understand, like, what are the kind of the, the core drivers that we have in life? And to be honest, you know, we've done this work for a while now. Every has their own, like, slightly different version, but they're, like, within the, the same sort of box, yeah. right? Most people want some kind of connection, yeah. some kind of, like, impact or status, some kind of enjoyment, fun, flow in what they're doing. And if we can identify that, then that why starts to inform our how. So yeah. how is it that I cultivate more of that feeling? How do I make sure that my needs are being met in whatever it is that I'm doing? And that starts to make the what actually fulfilling. Because yeah. if we can't identify our why, we just spend our time like being hamsters on a wheel, yeah. like doing all of the things. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But we just, this feeling of like not being fulfilled. Yeah. And so for me, like, being with the why helps us distill the what so we get yeah. to prioritize and get rid of the stuff that isn't actually meeting our needs. And then, yeah, the how is exactly what you talked about. The place where actually we have most control. Like we can't control the outcomes. We have so much more influence about how we show up and how we engage in things. You know, I was speaking to a client uh, yesterday who her circumstances have, have changed. And so, yeah, she's now feeling like a lot of this external pressure. Like, there's not much she can do about the external circumstances. And we spend quite a lot of time on our call thinking about, well, how does she create more ease for herself? So rather than like just accepting that this pressure is how it has to be, what can she do to create more ease for herself in the face of this pressure? The pressure doesn't go away, but at least she's then not making it worse for herself. And the irony is, like I think you said, the how is where we have control, but it's also where we're having fun. Yeah. And it's also where we're building our curiosity. So it's an opportunity. The how it's an opportunity. And the why, how you framed it, I really love it because it's very tangible. It's clear. It's not just some um, beautifully, you know, almost a marketing-like sort of a vision that we have for ourselves mm-hmm. that is unclear, unattainable, and it looks great on the walls, but it will, yeah. doesn't really have the tangibility. And maybe you still have that, right? You know, mm-hmm. like a love sure. of vision for those are, those are great. And what I'd invite people to do is to kind of go another level deeper with it. Because I think the things that we want in life, the what, are an expression of the strategies that we think will work to get our needs met. Mm-hmm. And if we can be clear about what the underlying need is, you get to discern a little bit or like hold it less tightly. So yes, this could be one way that I get this need met. Yeah. And here are some other ways that I could also be getting this need met in the world. Yeah. And maybe this is just my perfectionism speaking, the part of me that like really, like I don't like to fail. I don't like to kind of like set myself like it's this and then it doesn't work and I'm devastated. I like to have kind of more freedom and and more more choices, more more opportunities, more doors open. So for me, like having different ways that I know that I can get my needs met, that something in me relaxes. It's like, cool. Well, that means if, if I try this, if I'm in my spring and I try this when it doesn't work, it's not the end of the world because I've got all these other things that I can play with and it might work. Yeah. And tell me a little bit about how the people who you work with 
are they bringing you more the, how should I put this, the issues about professional life or overall life? Or where is your application of your work, so to speak, making more resonance? Yeah, I think it's both. A lot of the people I work with are entrepreneurs or like they've already taken this step off the path of kind of convention mm-hmm. not necessarily that you know I still work with people in, in corporates and things from, and there are there are lots of perfectionists in corporates <laughs> um, but yeah I think you know, the majority of my clients are people who have started to make that change and are still finding themselves it's like wherever I go there I am mm-hmm. it's like but hang on I, like I've changed this why am I still in these patterns like I left the job that was really stressful but I'm still feeling the same things and yeah people tend to come to me with a work thing in mind and yet so many of the conversations then also end up bringing in the relationships that they have because funnily enough like we're human beings and we don't live our lives in these neat little compartments and and to me this is like the beauty particularly of somatic work uh, in authentic relation we call it the hologram you know the way I am in one aspect of my life tends to be the way I am in all aspects of my life mm. you know we have these patterns and What's great about that is that you can work on that pattern in one area of your life and it mm. will have a domino effect. Mm. You know, as you start to develop more choice and, and more range, a different way of being in the world, that you almost can't help but start to kind of live that embodiment in the different parts of your life as well. Yeah. And have you found similar ways of talking about perfectionism the way you do? So you pointed out to Brene Brown and do you see this work coming up more? Does it still need to be spoken more of? Oh, yes. Yes. And then this is what I really hope like the book would start to be was mm-hmm. kind of like a counterpoint to this dominant narrative. I got so annoyed in the new year. There's so many posts on Instagram, like things to leave behind in 2021, imposter syndrome, perfectionism. Oh like, my gosh. I mean, A, if it was that easy, we'd have all done it already. Yeah. But B, I'm like, what am I meant to do? Just like cut my right arm off and leave that? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I'm really bored. Yeah. Because this is the problem, right? The self development industry mm-hmm. tells us that if only we fix these problems about ourselves, yeah. life will be fine. Yeah. And the conversation I want to be having is like these are not personality flaws. These are part of who we are. And yeah, you know, lots of us come to a stage in life where it's like they're no longer adaptive strategies. They are now causing more hurt, more pain than problems that they're solving. That doesn't mean that we get rid of them. It means we yeah. learn new skills. Yeah, exactly. It's just such a different orientation. Yeah. So, yeah, I think we need to be talking more about this and what perfectionism really is because, like I said earlier, we don't really understand what's going on for us. Yeah. How can we possibly start to know what it is that we want to do differently? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I will keep talking about this. <laughs> good. Yeah, good. I'm blue in the face. <laughs> you really do it in a great way and I like I said you I love your newsletter your articles are really really clear and inspiring and it's interesting what you were now saying because indeed when you said oh well the things to leave behind in 2021 I just picture some people you know googling about those you know those keywords and just okay do I have this and it becomes just a new thing to add on to the more stress in life so we're always fighting something instead of like dancing with it right oh yeah perfectionist thinking in action is like if only I could fix this thing about this then I'll be a perfect person yeah exactly so many of my clients are just like it's back-to-back courses and like the irony of the book is like of course I hope it will connect with people with me and that people will want to work with me as a result of course I will be really honest about that and at the same time I am so excited about the messages that I get from people who are like 
your book gave me permission to not do this next course <laughs> or to not have to work quite so hard on myself. Yeah. So yeah, my hope is that people read the book and be like, oh, maybe I am okay as I am. Yeah. Maybe I don't have to fix this thing or yeah. get this next certificate or whatever else that I thought I needed to do in order to, yeah. to be enough. Yeah. Which I think is a very different message to a lot of the self personal development. Yeah. Yeah, but you also, besides being okay with how we are, you're also creating the invitation for us to know a little bit more about what perfectionism does in a way that it depletes energy. It's a stagnation in our body, in our creativity. And there is the invitation to, okay, so then allow yourself to know a little bit more about this so that you can create the tools, the how in order to live with it and, and live a more fulfilling life. Yeah, yeah. My next book, or the next step for me in this is having started to develop this like deep sense of acceptance and kind of ability to encounter myself without making myself wrong. Mm-hmm. The next stage for me is like, well, how do I now inhabit my power? Because mm. the perfectionists I know are amazing people. They do incredible things in the world mm-hmm. and the perfectionism is holding them back. And so for me, it's like the acceptance is one step in the process. And then there's something delicious that comes after that of like, okay, now, how do I really claim that in the world? How do I yeah. express my my authentic power yeah. into the world? But rather than that coming from, I have to do something, coming from this place of, I'm okay as I am. Yeah. And the more that I do that, then I can allow the impulse to do something to move me yeah. rather than forcing it. So yeah, that's the next little phase that I'm playing with at the moment. Nice. Looking forward yeah. to seeing that. <laughs> So uh, that leads us nicely to what I wanted to know is, okay, what's coming up for you? What are you currently busy with? I mean, although maybe this episode will, you know, Mm -hmm. be published later on, but yeah, what's keeping you busy at the moment? Yeah, well, I've actually, I've just come to the end of a couple of things. So I've got a a program that's currently called Get It Done, Mm -hmm. um, So, which is really applying some of the things we've, we've spoken about to a project that has been feeling stuck in some way mm-hmm. so I'm just kind of like harvesting the feedback from that and thinking about what that will look like that will definitely be back next year that's, I have to run it twice this year it's been nice. really beautiful so that's coming up for anybody who's in Bali I have a three-day immersion called the power within just what oh. I spoke to so that's coming up in in January there's one-to-one coaching that's also keeping me busy and also like a little sense of like I haven't started to plan like 2023 yet great there's stuff I will be running a mentoring program for the first time so I've been having other coaches and facilitators reach out to me to say how do you do what you do when it comes to facilitating space and like this kind of the authenticity that I bring as a facilitator, also encouraging that in, in participants. So yeah, I've got a little pilot of that coming in the new year as well. That's actually, and as I say that, that's that's quite a lot. Um, yes, exactly. <laughs> I don't really know. I don't really know stuff. But yeah, um, <laughs> this is me revealing my overachieving perfectionist side. <laughs> Oh, good, good, good. And can you also point to how people get to see your work? Uh, buy the book on Amazon, but also you can uh, order it. Yeah, definitely buy the book. Yes, <laughs> um, absolutely. Uh, yeah, that's on um, Amazon Kindle paperback, or you can get on Apple Books as well. Mm-hmm. I am on Instagram at Bix underscore Anderton. And my, you can get find me on the website at VixAnderton.com. And yeah, if you're um, passing Bali, I teach at a studio called Radiantly Live in Ubud at least once a week. So if you'd like nice. to come and hang out in person, 
Yeah. Yeah. Come and join me in the, the tropical jungle of Ubud. Oh, nice, nice. I'll I'll definitely put that on my list. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, Fix. This was a really wonderful conversation to get to know you and your work and your passion. And thank you so much for uh, putting this work out there. It's really valuable. Thank you. Thank you so much. And, and thank you for um, giving me a platform to talk about the thing that I love the most for, uh, for nearly an hour. <laughs> Absolutely. And is there anything extra that I didn't cover that you needed to say? Oh, there's so much I could say. And no, that feels, it feels complete. That feels like enough. There you go. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much, Fix. I wish you a great remain of your day, good rest, and we'll be in touch. Yeah, thank you, Anna.